You ever been in a conversation where you were going back and forth with somebody and, and tracking together about what this conversation is all about, and then the other person tosses something into the conversation that is just so far in left field, you have absolutely no idea what is happening, how to respond. I, we were having dinner the other day as a family. My daughters were there, my wife, my mother-in-law were sitting around the table having a conversation about the things that families talk about at the dinner table. It doesn't matter, whatever it was. It was just a regular conversation. People were going back and forth. We were all kind of engaged with the same thing. And suddenly, my daughter is sitting beside me. She turns to me, and completely out of the blue, she, she says to me, Dad, what did her sisters mean when they called her mad? Now, uh, just so that you know, nowhere in this conversation that we've been having did we ever reference a person who could be referred to as her. Never talked about anybody who had sisters. The topic of being mad didn't even come into the conversation. This sentence was in absolutely no way connected to anything that we were talking about. And so I looked at my daughter, and I was a little bit cross-eyed, I'm sure, and I said, I, 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 I have no idea what you're talking about right now. And she said, you know, when she was talking to the mice. As though this is supposed to clear it all up for me. That, oh, now, so my brain is spinning. I'm like, what on earth, what are we talking about right now? And, and as, I'm, as I'm processing, trying to figure out what on earth my daughter's talking about, all of a sudden it dawns on me, I, a woman talking to Mike, she must be talking about Cinderella. Right? So I looked at my daughter, I said, are you talking about the movie Cinderella? And she said, yeah. And I said, like the, the new one with the real people, not the cartoon. And she said, yeah. And I said, what on earth? Like given our whole conversation that had nothing to do with that, what on earth made you think about Cinderella? And she said to me, she had just got her face painted that afternoon, and she said to me, well, Dad, she said, I stopped listening to what everyone was talking about, and I started thinking about this heart that's painted on my face. And then I started to think about the heart that is in my chest. And then I started to think about love, because love comes from the heart. And then I started to think about all the movies I know that has love in it. And then I started to think about Cinderella. And then I thought about the scene where she's talking to the mice. And then her sisters say that she's mad and I didn't know what that meant. So I asked you, what did her sisters mean when they called her mad? I was like, I, now to be perfectly honest actually, I don't actually know for sure that that's how the train of logic went. I know she mentioned her cheek and the heart in her chest, and then I think she talked about love. And after that, I was so completely fascinated by this random sequence of connections, this chain of thought that I was, that I was supposed to apparently be able to follow when she started the conversation by saying, what did they mean when they called her mad? What did her sisters mean? It was the most incredible thing. And it's, it was funny because it was so bewildering. It was funny to me because at some level, that's exactly how I felt coming to the text that we're studying this morning in Matthew chapter 17, starting verse 24. And you can turn there if you have a Bible or a Bible app on a device. The, we've been having a conversation for the last three weeks, if you haven't been here, called the way of Jesus. And we talked three weeks ago about how the way of Jesus is the way of suffering. That the life that Jesus invites us into is a life of, of disowning ourselves. 
disowning our plans, our dreams, our hopes, our agendas for life. Uh, it, it, it's um, the commitment to no longer at any level live for myself, to let go of all this stuff that I've been living for, and instead, with my empty hands, to pick up a cross and to start following Jesus, to live a life of self-giving, self-sacrificing love that is directed towards other people so other people can experience the love of God through me. That's what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. It means to, to die to myself so that other people can experience what it means to live a real life with God. And this is the way that Jesus has invited us into. And then two weeks ago, Jeff talked about that this way of Jesus is the really the only pathway to glory in a life of following Jesus. That we live our, many of us often, we live our lives of faith, kind of moving from one mountaintop experience to the other. You know, worship experiences, Sunday services, summer camp, whatever it happens to be for you, that, that experience that'll pump up your spiritual tires and, and keep you going again. And we, we kind of live from these mountaintop experiences to mountaintop experiences, and they can be amazing. I, uh, my wife and I and gajillions of people from Southridge were at a worship concert in Hamilton this week. And if that's your thing, it was just this phenomenal uh, event in some ways. But even as I was sitting there, I was thinking about this series and thinking, this isn't what it means to follow Jesus. This is a wonderful experience and it's very encouraging and uplifting and empowering and whatever. But this isn't what it looks like to follow Jesus, having an experience like this. An experience of following Jesus, the real glory of following Jesus is the life, is choosing a lifestyle of this disowning yourself and living a self-sacrificing love directed towards somebody else so somebody else can experience the love of God through your life. That's that's where the real glory of following Jesus is. That, when we're doing that, that is when we most radiate the beauty of who Jesus is in our lives. And it's really hard. It's a really tall, challenging order that, that Jesus lays out. It's a, it's a high calling. And Allison talked last week about how this is not something that we can do on our own. This is not something we can do for ourselves. If we attempt to live this life on our own, in our own strength, we are going to fail. This is not a mountain that we move for God. In fact, God has called us to trust him to move the mountain for us, to empower us, to do in us and through us what we could never do in and through ourselves, to help us become what we could never become by ourselves. That we have to develop the kind of trust in God that will follow Christ and then just trust that God will do what he needs to do in and through us. This has been the conversation we've been having for three weeks. And then Matthew, in chapter 17, verse 24, begins to tell this story that, as far as I was concerned, is absolutely unrelated in every single way to anything that we've ever been talking about. In verse 24, it says this. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. Now the temple tax, you have to understand, this is a sum of money that gets collected uh, often on an annual basis in the hometown of each individual person. So Peter and and Jesus are registered as citizens of the town of Capernaum, so their temple tax would be collected 
in the town of Capernaum, and there would be tax collectors in that town that would collect the tax, and it was gathered in the month prior to the Passover festival in Jerusalem. And basically, it wasn't a huge amount of money. It was about two days' work that was uh, expected to be given as a part of the temple tax. Two drachmas. A drachma was a day's work. And, uh, and the money was used to pay for the animals that were going to get sacrificed in the temple for all the sacrifices that were done in the temple on behalf of the whole nation, right? If I go to the temple to worship and I bring an animal sacrifice, I pay for the animal sacrifice. That's on me. That's my sacrifice. But who pays for the sacrifices that are made on behalf of everybody? Well, everybody has to pay. And so there was precedent in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures in the law, for this idea of collecting an annual temple tax that would get shipped to Jerusalem and it would fund all of these sacrifices. Now, the debate of the day was who was responsible to pay for the temple tax because there was a wide range of opinions about this, right? There were some really fanatical Jews called Pharisees, and they believed that every Jewish male 20 years of age or older was responsible to pay the two drachma temple tax on an annual basis. They were very fanatical about it, but not everybody agreed. The priests, for example, well, the priests said, we don't owe any temple tax. Our job is to work at the temple. That's our contribution, so we don't pay. We're the ones who, you know, do the work. And then there were others who read the Old Testament differently, and they said, well, it doesn't really say that you have to pay the temple tax. It says it's a voluntary offering. It's not, you know, a, la- a tax law. It's more like a PBS pledge drive, right? You, can, you should contribute. If you're a user of the temple, you should contribute to the temple because if nobody paid, then, you know, you couldn't have the service anymore. But there's nothing, it wasn't legislated or mandated. It was a voluntary thing. And then there were other people who read the Old Testament differently, and they said, well, it's actually not even an annual thing. It is mandated, but it's just kind of a once-a-lifetime thing. So I've paid mine once, and I'm done. And then there were the poor, the disabled, the beggars, the widows, the orphans, and it was just a lot of money for them, and so they never paid. And then oftentimes, Galileans, people who lived in the north, like Peter and Jesus, they were just super lax about paying. Well, listen, the temple's not even in our province. It doesn't feel like it's our problem. So why would we contribute? And they just never, basically, they never paid. And so there was this kind of ongoing debate about who ought to pay the temple tax. And if you were one of these tax collectors, because there was no legislation on your side backing you, you really couldn't force anyone to pay. The only thing you could do is kind of use strong-arming, confrontational tactics. You'd sort of confront people in the street and say, listen, are you going to pay the temple tax or not? And you kind of lean into this social pressure to make people feel guilty. And you especially, you target influential, well-known people because if you can get them to pay, then other people are more likely to pay. And so these guys, they come up to Peter and they say, listen, your teacher's going to pay the temple tax, Right? Now, you know how in English, there's, there's two ways to ask a question, a yes-no question. And you can basically communicate what you expect the answer to be, right? You, you could ask this question, listen, you're going to pay the temple tax, right? Or you could ask the question, you're, you're not going to pay the temple tax, are you? And they, both questions mean the same thing, but you're communicating, I expect a yes or I expect a no. Well, it's the same thing in Greek. You can always tell when somebody asks a yes-no question whether they expect the answer to be yes or whether they expect the answer to be no. And these tax collectors expect that Jesus is going to pay the temple tax. So they come to Peter, your teacher's going to pay the temple tax, right? And Peter says, yeah, of course he is. 
And Peter, it says, verse 25, he comes back into the house, and Jesus is the first one to speak. He wants to debrief this experience with Peter. He says, what do you think, Simon? That's Peter's other name. He says, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duties and taxes? From their own children or others? From others, Peter answered. Ah, then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. Jesus wants to confront Peter's answer. Peter's very confident. Yeah, yeah, of course we'll pay the temple tax. And Jesus kind of pulls Peter aside. He says, listen, he says, I want to ask you about this. And he does it by way of analogy. He says, listen, when you think about the kings who rule various territories, whatever, they all collect tax and duties and customs and whatever. They collect money from people. Do they collect money from their kids and their grandkids or do they collect money from everybody else? And Peter says, well, no, of course they collect money from everybody else, not from their kids. And uh, Jesus says, right, the kids don't have to pay, do they? By analogy, Jesus is making his case with Peter as to why actually he shouldn't pay the temple tax. See, the kings, in Jesus' little metaphor there, the kings are compared to the king of heaven and earth, who is God. And God's throne in a Jewish mentality, God's throne in heaven is at the temple. And so the kings, just like kings collect taxes to fund their rule from the throne, God collects taxes to fund his rule from the throne at the temple. But the question is, who has to pay? And Jesus says, if you're a child of the king, you don't pay taxes. This isn't a democracy. It's not like here, where by the end of this week coming up, every single one of us had better filed. Even Justin Trudeau's got to file. There's nobody exempt from filing income tax. This is an ancient monarchy, and you don't charge your kids tax. You don't, you don't tax your kids to provide for everybody else. You tax everybody else in order, among other things, to provide for your kids. And what Jesus is saying is, look, we're, we are the children of God. Two times in Matthew's biography, God's voice has broken into the story. And both times, God has declared that Jesus is his son. And Jesus says, if I'm God's son and y'all are my brothers, you know, so to speak, then we don't have to pay the temple tax because the king's kids don't pay. The king doesn't extract money from his kids. He, he supplies, he provides money to his kids. But, verse 27, Jesus says, just so that we don't cause offense, go to the lake and throw at your line. The first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. Jesus says, listen, but let's, I don't want to cause a fuss. I don't want to, it literally says, I don't want to scandalize anybody. I don't want to create an offense. I don't want to make anybody upset. So we'll pay them. We don't have to. But we're going to pay the tax. Um, I mean, why would people be scandalized? Because Jesus is saying, when people say, you're going to pay the taxes, no, I don't have to. I'm God's son. So I don't have to pay. You have to pay. You're not really God's children, the rest of you, but we are. We're God's legitimate children, so we're not going to pay. He says, it's not worth the fight. So imagine if we all made more decisions in how we related to each other. I'm not going to go there because it's not worth the fight. I'll just do what I'm being asked to do because I don't want to offend. I don't want to scandalize people. Be a nice 
world if we did that. But, but Jesus says, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna pay the tax. Here's what I want you to do. Go get your hook and your line, stand at the end of the dock, cast in the water, pull out a fish. First fish you catch, you're gonna open its mouth. There's gonna be a coin in there. There's gonna be enough for your tax and mine. Go and pay the tax. And presumably, it doesn't say, but presumably Peter does exactly what Jesus asks him to do. And they pay the temple tax, but claim their exemption, right? Jesus is exempt from paying. It's not out of his wallet. He doesn't pay for the tax. God does, because God provides the money they need to pay the tax that they don't even owe. That's the story. That's it. That's the whole thing right there. What on earth is the point of the story? The point of the story is you and I don't have to pay the temple tax. Let's pray. Uh, See, it's at moments like this that I'm glad that we take the offering before I preach. Uh, (laughs) No, what's the point of the story? To understand the point of the story, you have to think about it in the context of the conversation that we've been having. Right? The conversation has been about what it means to disown yourself, to deny yourself, to stop living for yourself and to pick up the cross and live a lifestyle of self-giving, self-sacrificing love directed towards other people so that other people can experience the love of God directed into their life. And the love of God is always self-sacrificing love. That's what this conversation has been about. And that's the only pathway to glory. That's the only way to become the person that God has created you to be, to reflect the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the love of Jesus into the world. That's the only way to do it. And it's hard. And it's not something that we can do on our own. It's something that we have to lean into God for. It's something we have to trust him to do in and through us rather than us trying to do it for ourselves. And the question that hangs over the whole conversation is, how do I know that God is trustworthy to provide me with what I need to do in and through me, what he needs to do in and through me for me to become the person that he wants me to be? How do I know that God can be trusted to provide what I need? And Jesus' answer is, God can be trusted because of who God is. The whole point of the metaphor is that while God is the king, and and don't get me wrong, God is the king. God is the king of heaven and earth. And God is filled with infinite authority and absolute power to rule over everything. He demands our allegiance. He demands our obedience. And he has the right and the power to crush us if he wants to, if we disobey him. God is the king of heaven and earth. But Jesus' entire point in the parable is that God chooses to not relate to us as the king lording his power and authority over us, that the way God chooses to relate to us is as a good father, a good mother, as a good parent who relates to us on the basis of love. That God relates to us not as a king lording his authority over us. God relates us to us as a parent who is pouring his love out on to us. Which, by the way, means 
that when God calls us into the way of Jesus, which is the way of suffering, when God says the only pathway to glory is for you to deny yourself and live a lifestyle of self-sacrificing love where every moment of every day is for the benefit of somebody else no matter what it costs you. When God says this is the calling, this is what it means to follow Jesus, he says that because he loves us. He says that not because he has these ridiculously high expectations, not because he loves to see us suffer. He says that because he loves us, because he wants what's best for us, like a good and loving parent does. Remember, in the first week of this series, Jesus said that those who will lose themselves for his sake will find themselves. Those are the people who become the very best version of themselves. Those are the people who become the selves that God had created them to become. The whole second week of the series, the point of the second week was that that's, those are the lives through whom the glory of Jesus shines. Those are the people who reflect and radiate the beauty of the person of Jesus in the world. The people who are following Jesus and doing what Jesus did, denying themselves and living lives of self-sacrificing love where they're dying to themselves so that somebody else can know what it's like to live in the love of God. That's when you are the person you were created to be. And God is a good and loving parent wants nothing more than to see you become the person that he's created you to be, to become everything that you can God relates to us not as a lording tyrant, a tyrant lording his authority over us. He relates to us as a good parent pouring his love out onto us, which means his posture towards us is not demanding, but generous. Right, God, I heard this phrase last week. God is not a tiger dad. Right, the reference being to Earl Woods, Tiger Woods' dad, who from the moment Two-year-old Tiger could imitate Earl Woods' body movements, began to ingrain in his son the fundamentals of golf because his expectation was that his son would become the greatest golfer the world had ever seen. And his son did for a very brief period of time before his humanity self-destructed because of unhealthy that dynamic is. God isn't like that, and I suspect that many of us live with this perception of God, that God is the king who is lording his authority over us, that God lives in this kind of perpetual state of disappointment in us because he wants more and more. He demands that we do better and better and better. He wants the higher grades and he wants the greater success and he wants us to earn more money and he wants more from us. And we live with this perception that God is always demanding more and that's not who God is. God does not posture his relationship as one of demanding something from us. He postures himself as someone who is providing something for us. That what he wants is for us to become the fullest and best version of ourselves that we can possibly be. And God is prepared as the good parent that he is to pour anything that we need into our lives in order to become the people that he has created us to be. God will give and do anything 
to see us become those people who radiate the beauty of Jesus in the world. And if you just want proof, all you have to do is look at the cross. He gave himself and all of himself out of love to give us everything that we need. That's what the whole the whole miracle story at the end, the, the parable is all about God doesn't demand anything from you. The whole miracle story at the end is that God is willing to provide everything for you. Why? Because he's a good, good parent who's postured himself towards you in love. Not lording his authority over you, but pouring out his generosity on you, the generosity of his love. And I, I want the, to invite the band to come to the stage because I want us just to sit in this, with this idea for a few minutes that God, as the song says that we're going to sing in just a minute, that God is a good, good father. It could have said good, good mother. It could have said good, good parent. Father is the cultural language of the New Testament, so the song uses the phrase good, good father, that he's a good, good father and that his orientation towards us is love. And as we sit in this space and listen to the song and sing together, I want you to be asking yourself one question. What needs to shift inside of you for you to begin to think about God as a good father. The question is, is written inside your program there. Where do you need to look to God as a loving and generous father? How do you need to begin to consider God that way? And then sing this song as the declaration of your spirit, of who you know and claim God to be in your life. Let's, let's sing this song as a prayer together.